So welcome to uh, this episode of the podcast. We have a um, pretty special guest this time. Not only have we got glorious Captain Bill Lindsay, who we've talked about previously, um, but the uh, 2010 world champion, uh, Triple Crown winner, Neil Robertson, is, we've been lucky enough to get him, which is a pretty big get for our... <laughs> we <laughs> caught our podcast Chalking Snooker before we thought that we'd uh, get someone of Neil's calibre. So we probably might need a more sophisticated name, but welcome and thanks for joining us, Neil. Yeah, no worries, guys. How old when you actually picked up Q? Um... I first picked up a queue, I think, when uh, I think my brother and my dad, we went to, um, we went to a, a club uh, in Knox, yep. and it was called TC's, and I think we would have been about maybe 10 or 11 years old, um, and we used to go there way, maybe once every sort of three weekends or something like that. Um, my dad would play with a couple of his mates, um, and he would send my brother and I to one of like, the small pool tables. And um, yeah, so we, that, that's how we originally started out. Um, and then uh, my dad found a different club uh, in Ringwood uh, on the Marinda Highway. Um, and I think at the time it was called UQ2. And uh, yeah, so then we started to play pretty much every weekend together. And uh, I think a year after that, um, my dad actually bought um, half of the club. Uh, the, the second owner at the time was, was, was selling his half and my dad bought it. And then all of a sudden, that sort of changed everything with us. We uh, all of a sudden we could play free pool, free snooker, and um, yeah, that that's sort of like what what really started everything off. Okay, when you started actually playing comp snooker, what age were you then? Um, well, I, I guess I guess competitive uh, from my point of view was was when I was a junior. Every Sunday morning, my dad used to run a junior competition for I think like under 15s, under 18s, and give handicaps to like the younger kids like myself and my brother we were only like 11 years old and uh the winner got something like five dollars uh can of coke at a mars bar and so uh, <laughs> for myself and my brother at the time that was like a huge prize that you know we were, we were desperate to try and win and i guess that's what started everything off from a competitive standpoint and then from there it's like a natural progression of once you start uh, really improving as a player you start entering state championships uh, my first state title I uh, got runner-up in the under-12s um, uh, Victorian 8-ball championship. And then I qualified then for the, the under-12s Australian 8-ball. Um, I ended up winning that, which was a few months after. And then, then yeah, then I really started to, to dominate um, the, the Australian and Victorian junior scene. I, I won all the, all the under-15s, under-18s, Victorians and Australian titles. And, um, yeah, then it was like a, a natural progression into entering the, the amateur ranks at senior level. So what sort of hours would you be putting in on the table during the week? Would it be after school for a few hours or how does that work? Um, well, my dad set it up so that after school on a Friday that I would practice with um, one of the top players in Australia, uh, Aaron Marnie, who was um, definitely one of the best junior eight ball players in the world and was, was one of the best um, junior uh, snooker players in Australia. And after school every Friday I'd practice with Aaron then every Saturday morning I'd have a coaching session um, with uh, definitely one of the best coaches in Australia at the time, uh, Brett Rogers. And every Saturday morning we would uh, be practising with, uh, with each other and he'd be showing me a lot of uh, routines and things to do. Uh, when did you make your first 100 break regardless of uh, practice or comp? Uh, well, my first one actually was in competition, funnily enough, uh, which is quite rare. Uh, I was 14 
I made a 110 break at the... Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so that means, hang on, you started when you were 11, so that's three years. So I've, only been, I've got two years to wait. <laughs> You've got potential. Yeah. Oh, you have got ways to go, I think. Yeah, 37 yeah. at the moment. That's yeah. not bad. <laughs> How old are you again, Dave? Uh, th- same age, 37. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and uh, what was really special about it was is that um, it was on the number one table... Um, at the Princess Club uh, at the time, sadly, it's it's no longer there anymore. But uh, it was at the number one table, um, one of the biggest tournaments in Australia. And uh, there was all the top Australian snooker players all kind of like surrounding and watching. Because in a, in a room in a big tournament, when you hear the referee sort of go 60-something, then 70-something, and all of a sudden players start to go around that table to, to see the break. And um, and my dad was just there sort of like watching, um, sort of staying out of view for me because he thought maybe he might be... Able to put, me, put me off or something like that. Yeah. Put me under too much pressure, but there was already enough pressure because you had all the best players in Australia there watching. And um, when I cleared up to make the 110, uh, my dad thought that that was the moment when he knew that I'd be able to make it um, as a, as a world class snooker player. If I can handle that kind of pressure at 14, then I'll I'll be able to handle it at, at any time in my career. I was going to ask, like, um, is is that when you kind of thought that you might be able to make a career out of, out of it as well? Um, it was certainly like a huge buzz and I guess it gave me a lot of confidence. Yep. Um, I think my highest break previously to that would have been something around in the 80s. Uh, so um, the earlier you can make your first century, the easier it is to make other ones right. because once you make one, then they all start to like, you know, they just start to come tumbling down and, and come with so much ease. Um, maybe like a, a, a test batsman when he makes his first hundred or, you know, they just come so much easier after that once you've broken that mental barrier yeah and um yeah that, that was probably when i thought seriously that i really wanted to try and be a professional yeah so i'm just going to play like a little audio clip if we're talking about centuries um it's obviously a really big milestone for and most of the pro- yeah. professionals but a lot of amateurs kind of can eventually get there if they're really really good we've got a few guys in our you know league sort of josh gorski makes 90s and 100s semi-regularly um, but this is a clip from your career. Um, we'll just see if you can uh, kind of guess uh, when it actually is um, and tell us a little bit about it. Surely now he's going to get it. Two pots from an unbelievable record that might 96. never, ever get beaten again. Congratulate them if this green goes in. So, do you know when that was? Yeah, it was the uh, quarterfinals against Judd Trump. Yeah, the hundred, yeah, hundred, world championship, <laughs> eleven all. Uh, and you went on to win that match, which I was surprised because both times I've done really well. My 37 break in snooker, <laughs> I lost the frame. Which my best <laughs> and the f- 24, my highest ever billiards break because I've only been playing a month, I lost last night. <laughs> <laughs> so it's amazing that you managed to do that and actually win the, fr- uh, win the match after that. Yeah, mm. because uh, I was 6-2 I was down uh, and I was 11-8 11, uh, 11, down in the match, you know. Yeah. Uh, in the quarterfinals of the World Championship, it's a, it's a huge match because... Um, you, know, you go down to the one table setup at the Crucible. Then it goes from two tables in the arena to just yeah. one, where yeah. you know, the, the arena transforms. And um, going into 
well, pretty much the whole season, there was always the talk of can Neil be the first player to make 100 centuries in a season. Um, the pressure was huge going into the World Championship. I think I was on like 90, uh, 91 or 92 going in. So yeah. it was still a real tough ask. But um, mm. I started off like an absolute rocket my first match. I think I had three, three or four centuries in my first round yeah. match. Uh, then I had a couple against Mark Allen. And so I was going into the match with Judd Trump on 99. Um, and in the back of my mind, I was thinking of Bradman. When he, you know, he got out and it, uh, for a duck and oh, then he, yeah, he needed, finished needed his average on 99.8 or something. Yeah. And so a few <laughs> of the, the press guys after my match with Mark Allen, you know, sort of like mentioning that, oh, what happens if you get stuck on 99 like Bradman? <laughs> and I was thinking, oh. And so you'd rather get, yeah, you'd rather get like 70 in a season than 99. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> and um, so I became a bit desperate against Judd in the match. I was just thinking, just, just get the 100, get mm. it over and done with, and then you can relax. The longer the match went on and he got further and further in front, I was thinking, oh, no, don't tell me I'm going to be stuck at 99. Like, <laughs> it, it'll be all for nothing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, to make it, I've, I've never been more relieved in my life. Do you think it will – there's more tournaments now than when you did it and yeah. there probably seems to be more opportunities. Do you think it's something that will be done again? Yeah, I got pretty close last year. I made 86 yeah. last mm. year uh, and I got beaten the quarters of the World Championship. And, yeah. um, yeah, if I – one against John Higgins at the quarters, I would have had a whole, uh, I would have had a best out of 33 and then potentially a best out of 35 final to yeah. play where. And they scored know, plenty of centuries in that yeah, final. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah the, way, the way the table played from the semifinals onwards, it was really good for scoring. And yeah. um, I, th I think it will get beat um, because, yeah, th there's a lot more tournaments now. Um, there's a lot more tournaments with longer distance matches. Mm. Um, so naturally, it, it will get beat. Like, that's what records are there for mm. to, to get beat. Um, but, to, but to do it in the era where, you know, I think um, the previous best was something like 60. Yeah. So I almost doubled yeah. the previous yeah. record. So yeah. nobody will ever do that. Yeah. Um, and it seems to be a pattern, though, in like a lot of what you've done throughout your career, and not just in snooker, but you really set your mind to that that year. You talked about Stephen Hendry, you know, setting a standard of clearing up. No matter what the situation, mm. you clear up. Really important because... I see a lot of times with players, they'll make 70 or 80. It'll be enough to win the frame. Their opponent's definitely going to concede. Then they just relax and then they miss. Yeah. So if you concentrate just a little bit more, and you clear the table, maybe you make 120-odd, the crowd go nuts, they're all cheering. Um, you feel really good about yourself as well. Yeah. Um, and it just puts more pressure on your opponent. It's just it's it's longer. The longer you make your opponent sit in the chair, having to wait for their next shot, you know, the better. So I, I've always adopted that Stephen Hendry attitude in that regard. Yeah. It's like, who were your snooker heroes when you were coming up? Um, it was, yeah, definitely like Stephen Hendry, Jimmy White, yeah. you know, Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins, Mike Williams. Like, they were the guys because they were like the best and yeah. they all had different sort of styles that I really liked. I yeah. liked, you know, um, Jimmy White, you know, six-time finalist of the World Championship, never never got it done. I remember watching videotapes of Jimmy White in the final that he lost 18-17 to Stephen Hendry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> devastating. <laughs> he missed, he missed uh, such an easy black. And oh, no. uh, still going back and, like, watching the videotapes when I was, like, 15, 16 watching it, um, I'll be watching him at 17 all and I'm still, like, cheering him on. Yeah. Somehow, <laughs> maybe yeah. he's still going to do gonna it. He's going to do it. It's a bit like with that with, like, when Goran Ivanisevic won Wimbledon. And, and that same thing, 
This is Bill with the Frankston Club Championship. Made yeah. the final again this year, but we're going to get him over the line. So hopefully uh, <laughs> you're going to have to inspire him. Because Bill, how many times have you made the final, Bill? Uh, quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> it's so a he's the Jimmy White of the It's, it's a so. struggle. But the players who beat me were way too good at the time and got to give credit to those players very modest. as well. So yeah. Um, yeah. that's, that's a, a big plus, I'd say. Mm. Um, to, uh, we'll go to the 2010 year, uh, obviously the fantastic highlight for you. Uh, and Shall uh, I play the audio, Bill? Oh. We may as well, we've got it here. Just a, a lovely smile there, Neil Robertson. He knows that he's won this year's World Championship. Australian flag. She yeah. flew it on Smith from Melbourne to see her son. She said if he ever got to the final, she'd promise she'd be there. And he's not let her down. It's been hard graft. It's been a war of attrition. But the Australian now is just putting the finishing touches to a great tournament. So that was the final stages of the 2010 World Championship. That must have been amazing. Yeah, it was it was incredible. It's like um, uh, it was kind of like the natural progression for me at that time. I think I'd won uh, quite a few ranking events. Um, I think I was uh, at the time like sort of three or four in the world. Mm -hmm. um, so that was like the next big step was to win one of the triple crown events, uh, a triple crown events, which is the UK Championship, the Masters, yeah. World Championship. Yeah, there are like what's called the you know, yeah. traditional majors in our sport. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was incredible. Really, it was um, probably the hardest time it's ever been uh, to win the world championship from where the game was. Yeah, uh, we only had six professional tournaments at the time. We had lost all the like the um, like the tobacco sponsorship yeah, and all that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, big transition. Um, I think a lot of sports around the world were trying to sort of mm -hmm. like recover from losing yeah. you know sponsors. Yeah, and um, so nobody really knew where the game was going to go. So yeah. there was just so much pressure for everyone going in. Like, maybe is this going to be like the last? <laughs> Yeah. The world championship or what's going on yeah um barry hearn just took over the sport so you know who, who knows what's happening and um the the last 16 game i was playing martin gould and he yeah. came out super underdog oh and, um, and he is like hot and cold yeah he's un and sometimes he just goes, it's not my day <laughs> yeah i remember that <laughs> yeah. he uh he went six nil up and then i'm thinking like what is going on yeah exactly you know um, and uh, yeah, I was eventually I was eleven five down going to last session. Checked mm. out of my hotel, just thinking, "Oh well, Martin's just played too good. I'm you know, yeah. going to go out." And I don't know. Going into that session, uh, things just turned around. All of a sudden, all the big pots, the the two out of ten pots that he was getting earlier on in the match, they weren't going in. Yeah, I lifted my game. Yeah, applied some pressure and uh, somehow turned that match around and won thirteen twelve. And yeah. I remember at twelve each, I knocked in a really good long red to start off a fifty odd break, which was turned out to be like the match winner and Stephen Hendry said it's one of the best pressure pots he's ever seen yeah and um, quarterfinals beat six time world champion Steve Davis yeah in the quarters uh, and then uh, the, the semi-finals um, I was playing Ali Carter who was number three in the world at the time and uh, he was coming off his best ever season yeah and um, it was uh, when I won that match uh, I checked my phone so I've now I know I'm in the final of the World Championships. I think I, I beat Ali 17-12 or 17-11, yeah, something yeah. like that. 
and uh, I turn my phone on to see like you know some you know, all crazy messages and everything yeah, like yeah. oh can you get me tickets can you get me tickets <laughs> 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 you might you know, get those yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, couldn't, they couldn't be bothered to, <laughs> to turn up for like my other matches <laughs> everyone wants to be there for the final yeah um, and then uh, but I got a voicemail from my mum yeah uh, and uh, and she left it. Um, when I was going into my last session of against Ali Carter, so she made sure that I wouldn't see it or, or hear it yeah. before my last session against uh, Ali Carter. Yeah, and that would have been a fair bit of pressure if you'd known, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She said, uh, "Oh, hey there. Um, yeah, Chris and I have uh, we've we've just about to leave Singapore. We're on our way to to mm. watch the wow. uh, the World Championship, and uh, oh, I couldn't I couldn't believe it um, because." You know, it would have been great to have my dad there as well, but um, just to have some one, mm. one of those two there was mm. was just absolutely unbelievable. And uh, yeah, so then she arrived the day of the final, mm. and um, going into the final against Grain Dot, who's uh, won the world championship a few years before, mm. um, also got to the final as mm. well. <clears throat> um, put a huge amount of pressure on me. So on one side, it was like amazing to have my mum there, yeah. but at the same time, it put incredible amount of pressure yeah, on yeah. me because I didn't want to lose she's come all this way and I didn't want to lose yeah and um and emotionally it was quite a lot to go through anyway because that's the first time I've seen her since uh like June or something I'd always come back home for the off season for a couple of months yeah, and then yeah. uh, head back off to the UK around July time so that's the first time I'd seen her yeah. uh, since July in the world championships is in May so that was obviously a lot of emotion to go through and then yeah, you know, I'm trying to get my head around to play the world final in, in an hour and a half or something mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of sort of like butterflies in the stomach and everything, and um, I had to try and really you know refocus. And uh, yeah, it was, it was it was a really hard fought match. Graham is is one of these tenacious players who um, never sort of like gives in at mm -hmm. all. And um, first session I was actually down five three, uh, and then I turned it around in the second session I was I went nine seven up. Then I felt really good, really confident about, uh, that I could do the job. And mm -hmm. um, the the last session was 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 pretty tough, pretty tough and grueling. Graham made it real tough, sort of like match snooker. Like, mm. you know, if you're going to win this world championship, you're going to have to like drag you know, me just, off the table, yeah, yeah. Bury, bury me into the ground, John sort Higgins, of thing. Yeah. And um, yeah, and eventually sort of got over the line, and um, yeah, pretty comfortable in the end. And you know, Mum was there with the Australian flag, yeah. which was obviously a really nice touch because um, I think that really helped out with, with all the Australian media and everything, mm. seeing the Aussie flag, yeah. uh, something I never thought about, but Mum thought it would be a great idea. Yeah. And uh, then, yeah, all of a sudden my, my life just completely transformed. Yeah. We'll be it sure to bring a flag <laughs> with us. It's <Yeah. laughs> amazing because you did spend, I think there was one tournament, um, might have been the 2012, were you actually offered to buy beers for people to come and support you? Yeah, yeah. The, the Masters. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Uh, the, the Masters at Alexandra Palace in London. Uh, it's one of the tournaments there where the crowd are allowed to bring beers in and, and yeah. you know. And, and you wanted a bit of actual atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, the atmosphere is awesome. Yeah. And um, so obviously it was like, you know, a lot of the, the local um, players being supported, you know, the English players being supported by yeah. the London crowd. And I was like, oh of a plea from myself is that if there's any Australians that want to get down I'll all buy free beers or whatever like whole match because <laughs> 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 English fans are some of the, they are almost the best fans in the world that they are like what they do in this the, the cricket yeah but yeah, even exactly. the snooker just how, how knowledgeable they are yeah but just how much they love the game yeah yeah. yeah exactly yeah. yeah it's sort of like the version of the Barmy army and yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> and um the funny thing was I was I was um uh, playing Sean Murphy in the final, who yeah. I spoke about earlier, the yeah. two of us playing each other when yeah. we were 16 in, yeah. in the qualifiers, both probably had no idea we'd yeah. be playing each other in, in the second biggest event yeah. in the final. Yeah. 
And um, so I, I made my plea, you know, with, with the three beers and everything like that to any Aussies that, that turn up. And they asked Sean if he'll do the same, and he said he'll get a bottle of Coke with 1,500 straws. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah. So the funny thing was is that, like, I drew a whole bunch of, like, <laughs> cash, and I gave it to my mate, look, like, you know, I don't know, sort of yeah, if people turn up, whatever, in Aussie shirts or something. And so I went to play, and I, I don't know if any turned up in the end, but he, he was well prepared for it if, if it did. And um, Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was actually the first time I won uh, mm. with my son there, Alexander. Mm. He would have been um, only sort of like uh, nearly two yeah. at that stage. Yeah, and uh, that that was th- th- the feeling of winning tournaments by yourself is one thing, but winning them where you can share that experience with you know your family is is, is another. Is um, that interesting? I was going to ask about that just before you go on, but with family. For a sport like snooker, that's such a, you have such focus for a long, large part of your career. You said, "Well, hey, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it." It's you know, and it's such a fine motor thing that you know anything can kind of happen, and you're just not ever quite sure what your potential is. Yeah. To yeah. then all of a sudden have a family and have you know like all of these kind of I guess additional things in your life. Did you have a period where you kind of had to find a new balance in your life between snooker and? Like family as well. Yeah, it was um, a pretty tough transition, I think, when Alexander was first born because um, you know, being a snooker player growing up in Australia, you know, you kind of like, um, especially when I left school. I left school very young when I was only fifteen, and um, you know, played at my dad's club. I mean, the, the funny thing is, some you know, was that um, I went to uh, Norwood Norwood Secondary College, and. Um, the high school, so it was just down the road, literally from my dad's club. And so sometimes, you know, my mum would go to work, and I'd wake up, maybe don't feel like going to school, and so I'd just walk down to my dad's club. And I think that's a common, <laughs> thing. that's a common theme. I think Ian Gilby talks about that. That's how he started as well. It seems, it seems to be like that's how you get successful as well. Um, <laughs> but he would kind of be there, and he 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 understood that I just really didn't like school at all. It was it was nothing personal against teachers or anything like that. I just there was nothing in school. Um, that I was passionate about, you know, there was nothing that the wasn't going to help you become the, subjects, the world champion. Of the <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I'll be, I'll be there, you know, with my, my, you know, my head in my, in my hand like this, elbow on the desk, just looking outside, thinking about snooker, and so yeah. I still want to do it. And my dad understood that, yeah. And mm. so he'd be like, uh, you know, turn up and go, oh, hey, son, and he'd just get get the snooker balls out and go, okay, well, yeah. you don't feel like going to school today, so you know, like that. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can I just? I've got a piece of audio and I want to play it, and this is probably a bit harder than some of the other ones. So I want to see if you can pick up where this is from. I suppose the one thing in this boy's favour, John, he's blessed with tremendous cue power. And if he's going to get an angle out of this, he's going to have to hit this very hard indeed. Spend a long time looking at this shot here. I don't think he's going to be hard enough. I think we're going to have a safety battle on the black. So, do you know when that was? Uh, I think that was the 2009 Grand Prix. Yes, absolutely. Well done. I think that's it. Yeah, I think that was, that was an interesting one, and I think what probably speaks to Bill's point is that you know for most of us who play the game 
the you know the idea of pressure and handling yourself in that and just generally speaking to win your first nine televised finals to be able to you know get over the line even like you were saying against martin gould similar to judd trump i mean everyone will remember how much he steamrolled i guess through the semis and through the um through the grand final of this but that first round against tepchaya was 10-9 you know, mm. easily go, you know, tip tries hot and cold. Yeah, that well. cross double. Yeah. 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 So yeah. that pressure, the ability to actually handle the pressure in, in every big tournament you would have won, there's big moments. Yeah. Um, and how is that something that you think people just have? Or is that, how do you, is that something you work at? Yeah, I think it's um, a trait in all kind of like champions, I think. Um, the ability to win when it doesn't look like there's much hope. Uh, you've always just got to stay composed and always believe. That's something I've always done is, is always, no matter what the score, I could be 17 nil down in the final of the World Championship. Yeah. You've still got to believe that things can turn around yeah. um, because it's quite obvious to see that with a lot of other, even really good players and ranked in the top 20 in the world. Yeah. You know, they can kind of like, not completely give up, but they can you know, start to lose, you know, a bit of um, belief and stuff. And then that's what you feed off it as a top player. You start seeing that and all of a sudden your confidence and your, yeah, you go right through the roof and you see them sort yeah. of go the other way. Yeah. It's interesting because Bill, we have to get this in here because it's a local thing. In the preliminary final of the MSBA, because we have 50% of the reigning MSBA premiers here from the Frankston <laughs> RSL, um, Bill lost his first three frames in the prelim to Henry Chekkuti from Yarraville. Great bloke, love, like, brilliant Lovely player. Oh, yeah. 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 And um, lost his first three frames. We ended up six all. Um, and Bill had to come out and play a designer and got us over the line into oh. the preliminary final as well. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> but you should have seen the amount of um, sweating. And <laughs> but it is that thing that you talk about when there's not much hope to be able to do it. And I think that's something that all of us at whatever level, there's always these times, and that's why we love the game, is that sometimes it's just a battle with yourself, yep. but also a battle with the guy that you're playing against. And it's just something that's very simple. Yeah, I mean, look at the, you know, just look at the Ashes as, as much as it hurt. You know, yeah. Oh, that was such a good Stokes, game. Yeah. You know, it's like nobody else probably could have believed, even everyone in the crowd, but it, Stokes did. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And that's it. Yeah, it just never, 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 never die, you know, because you, you just don't know what's going to turn or what's going to happen sometimes. And uh, I say to my boys uh, when they miss a shot and they're going like this, I say, it's gone. Sam, <laughs> Sam, Sam's the one. Oh, I'm <laughs> not the one. Because yeah. <laughs> you, you can't bring it back. Yeah. No, that's not. And that, that's, that's um, one of my biggest traits is that you miss a shot, it's done. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't yeah. sort of go back in time. You can't, there's nothing you can do. All mm. you can do is play the next shot in front of you as, as best as you can. And yeah. About for people, you know, who are listening, who, you know, might be playing at any level, uh, the way that you practice to kind of get better, because obviously for someone like yourself, long potting, you know, incredible, you practice it an awful lot. So to develop the faith, what are the kind of things that you do in practice practically to make sure that, you know, you have trust in what your actual body can do, even when you're sort of under pressure as well? Um. Well, one thing I used to do when I was younger, it was something that I actually just um, did myself, is that I used to practice sometimes some hard routines when I was absolutely starving because that creates the same uh, feeling and pressure when you are under so much pressure in yeah. a match. You know, that feeling of, you know, potentially something's like moving a bit more than what they would otherwise. Yeah. So sometimes I'd like do this um, this exercise. I'm not going, I'm not having lunch until I do it. Yeah. And it's just amazing what how your body can sort of just go into this like ri ridiculous reserve yeah. of you know yeah. sort of like um getting the job done no matter what um but 
the most important thing in practice is 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 the quality of practice. It's not the amount of hours you do; mm. it's the quality. It has to be a hundred percent. So you're better off practicing for an hour, a hundred percent, than mm. doing four hours at sixty percent. Yeah, um, that's the most important thing. So I'd say that to anyone who who perhaps doesn't have uh, as much time as what I would to practice. Yeah, um, if you only have you know a few days to week, a few days a week where you can practice after work or or whatever, is to make sure that the quality is as as good as it can possibly be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said, Daniel. Um, next gonna, we're going to get that repeated to us all the yeah. time. Now. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever Bill comes in and we're, we're just you know playing a frame or something, he's like, what, "What are you guys trying to achieve?" Well, you might but see Sam or David starved to death trying to get a century break, <laughs> 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 and, and they took him out of the French narrow cell in the box <laughs> on the tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> they tried. <laughs> um, what does it take to keep winning through the years? Uh, do you see the parallels between snooker class of 92, which is uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Williams and Higgins, and the tennis pros and uh, Nadal, Federer and Djokovic? Yeah, I often compare the, compare the two, actually. I, I'd say absolutely identical. Um, just to have, um, uh, yeah, Williams, Higgins, Ronnie... Uh, in, in snooker for so long it's just been incredible for me as a younger player growing up um, something to really aspire to um, almost couldn't believe it really that when you know, I was 16 and um, clearly nowhere near good enough there's no way I would have thought that I'll be able to compete with these guys one day you know um, and, and beating all of them as well in, in big finals you know so that's just absolutely incredible to s- even think about now and um, yeah I'd say that the that those two comparisons are absolutely perfect. I think, I think that myself, Mark Selby, and you know Ding Junhui or, or Sean Murphy, not quite at that level. Given it a really good crack, we're, we've won everything there is to win in the game multiple times as well. Um, you know, but those guys heard you know to be able to sustain it for so long is 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 what is what is so key. As it is with um, you know Federer and Nadal and Djokovic, you know they've been able to sustain it when. You know, as tennis players, that they should be retired by now. In in previous years, they're sort of like raising the bar with how long you can still compete at the highest level. As is what uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins, and Mark Williams are doing. Yeah. Mark Williams won the world championship when I think he's forty two. Yeah, you know, Ronnie O'Sullivan is still playing amazing snooker, the, the best he's ever played, still at, at forty two, forty three. It's interesting though the phases that you go through in a, in a, your career, and uh, and even for us who are, you know you start out, you get a bit better, but then you get a bit worse. You get a bit better, then you get a bit worse. And what's been really interesting, and I guess you would have seen it now that you've probably got you know like further into your career that you kind of have these phases where you go geez i'm not really in the form to beat these guys but and it's, but you know people have these phases where they get hot for a year or two then something you know something will happen they'll just drop a little bit i think sean murphy's probably had a little bit over the last year year or two and you'd expect him to come back but you guys have kind of found a ways it's sort of a bit cyclical and mark williams kind of winning that world championship out of the blue mm. just shows that you know over your career you're not necessarily gonna maintain it the whole time but there will be times in your career where you get hot and if you're good enough the thing that you have that's really special will actually get you over the line um you know and for someone like Rodney it's the break building you know you have the long pots thing that is just it's something that you have that some people just don't have and I think it's you know you see that different times people when, when it's all working you can for us who've watched snooker over the last 15 20 years you can see that there's these players who you thought that might be the end of it, but then they come back yeah. better and bigger yeah. and better mm. later on. That's right. Yeah, and I guess you've probably had that to some extent. Yeah, yeah. I've had a couple of like you know quiet seasons. I guess um, the thing with the thing with snooker is is that um, which is a lot different to other sports is that like 
you know, you look at like AFL footy players and stuff like that, their, their bodies tell them when it's time to retire. Yeah, yeah. You know, they keep getting these these injuries that, you know, they just can't keep playing. Halves, old man injuries, yeah. <laughs> with, um, with snooker, though, that doesn't really happen unless yeah. um, unless your eyesight goes really bad or you get some kind of like chronic back problem. Yeah. Um, you can keep playing as long as you want. So it's all it's all about yourself with your dedication and with your commitment to the game if you can sustain it. Um, but it is really tough because, you know, I've been playing – I guess I've been playing sort of like semi-full-time, what you could say, since I was sort of like 14, 15, yeah. I guess, um, which is, you know, over 20 years now. And you think over 20 years doing the same thing, it's really long. It, it takes a lot of um, uh, takes a lot of like will and um, mental strength to keep doing that every day, keep going to the club every day, because it's not like we have these coaches knocking on the door. You have to be at the yeah. training a certain time. You know, if you're in a football team, yeah. if you're playing for Chelsea Football Club in the UK, in the Premier League, yeah. if you don't turn up to training on time, you know, get kicked out of the team whereas with the snooker player you can turn up to practice whenever yeah. you want you can go in the afternoon you can go in the morning <laughs> yeah, you can go yeah. you want so it requires um, a huge amount of uh, self-discipline um, from that regard and uh, yeah which which makes it you know what many people have said is, is, is the toughest sport in the world yeah yeah. you just been to the Nationals to watch uh, Matthew Bolton and uh, and um, James Mister. James Mister. Mm-hmm play uh, last Sunday and that's where I met you for the first time and we had a discussion to try um, see if we could promote our Q Sports more here and thank for, and I want to thank you once again for coming. Um, the question amongst this is that Matthew's made 137, 131 break, Kirk made 136 break. These two players were the most recent pro pro snooker players. They've dropped off the pro circuit. So how, does it, how difficult is it to make the pro snooker circuit? Yeah, it's really tough. I think it's, um, I guess, what a lot of people have said about my achievements makes them almost like um, doubly as impressive, I guess you could say. Yeah. I think that um, being from Australia, having to move to the other side of the world, it's completely different. For, for the players in the UK where, you know, they, they a lot of them, they're all around their family, so That's they exactly can get right. a really tough beat. They just drive home down the road and then it's like, oh, well, never mind. You know, you got your family around. Um, when you're by yourself... And then you know you, you get a really hard beat, and you're just by yourself with your own thoughts. You know, you maybe you got to wait several hours until you can actually call your mum and dad or something. You know, maybe three o'clock yeah, yeah, in the morning. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So um, it's a long time to have your own thoughts with you, and, and to not have any reassurances, uh, which is something I really struggled with early on in my career. And so Kurt, Kurt actually lived with um, Miller and I for a couple of years, and um, for him, it was going from being an amateur snooker player to Obviously, he had a full-time job. He would practice, you know, a few times a week. It was sort of similar when I was 16 where I qualified out of the blue. Mm. He won the Oceana. It was a huge surprise. Yeah. You know, it was his first ever tournament win. But all of a sudden, he had the opportunity yeah. to turn pro. And there's no way you can turn that down. Yeah, of course. And so he moved over to the UK um, uh, with his girlfriend, Ashley. And uh, they lived in an apartment in Cambridge for about six months. And then uh, they moved in with us and improved massively as a player. Um, it's just really tough. You're competing with guys who have been playing full time for like 12 years, and um, so yeah, they really had mental edges. Is that what you mean more so because they've yeah, been playing used that to long? the playing conditions. The the playing conditions in Australia are a lot different. Um, the pockets are bigger. The tables are a bit. Uh, the cloths are slower. Uh, and when you go over to the UK, you're playing on much faster tables and, and slightly tighter pockets. It's a big adjustment to go through, and. So, like, by the time that Kurt had adjusted and really improved, uh, his time on the tour had ended. You know, his two years had, had, had expired. and But he actually played He played really well in some tournaments. Got to the last 32 of the shootout. 
He beat Ryan Day, who was one of the top eight players in the world at the time. Uh, he beat him in the Welsh Open on the number one table, uh, the TV table, huge crowd. You know, millions of people watch, would yeah. have been watching that match around the world. Mm. Um, so I was really happy for him that at least he could have that moment to take away. That's something that he'll always be able to even go back on YouTube and watch it mm. over and over if he wants to. And mm. you know, so it's important that at least he got some really good memories. Um, from Matthew's point of view, it was really tough because he's obviously got a young family in Perth. You know, he knows himself that to do it properly, he would have to um, move them over to the UK. They'd have to live there, which is which is a massive, massive yeah. ask. Yeah. Um, and Matthew, I think, is maybe you're two older than me as well. So you know, it's, it's a lot different if you're in your early 20s to make that kind of decision. And so he, he stuck it out for a year. Um, he had some really tough draws. You know, when you turn pro, you can play anyone inside the top 64 in the first round. And Matthew seemed to be drawing the guys ranked in the top 10, top 20 yeah. first round every single time. Mm. And it's, it's very, very difficult to do. You know, if you're, you're, you know, you're a tennis pro, you turn pro, and all of a sudden if you're drawing the yeah, Dahl, Federer yeah. first round every time, it's pretty hard to make some inroads. Yeah. What is it about in, in England? I mean, what, what, I mean, what's your – in some of the ways – I mean, because you do rely a bit on the RSLs, and maybe we can't rely on that. And I mean, that's it probably. But in somewhere like England, how is it? You know, if snooker is privatized, and you know, you rely on private clubs, what's the difference over there that allows so many people to, you know, in the facilities, or are the clubs over there struggling as well? No, the the clubs in the UK are really struggling too. Um, in a different kind of way, I think over here, I've been speaking to a lot of friends of mine. Um, you know, especially from Sydney, where a lot of clubs are closing down in Sydney to, you know, fit in more of the the pokey machines. Yeah. Which you know, these clubs have like hundreds or even thousands of them in there. Yeah, and yeah. They're just trying to just eke out as much money from people as possible, which yeah. you know, I think is a disgrace, really. I, yeah, it's, it's just. It's good to have seen in the AFL that there's been a shift away from that as well. And yeah, Melbourne, right. I support Melbourne, and they've they've kind of gone away from that. Yeah, it's um, you know, like how much is enough? Yeah. It's like you know. You, I think the RSLs have always been a really good place to you know to go in and, and play snooker, where you know um, you know grandfathers can go in with their grandsons play snooker, or you know, mm. sons and dads can go play, or any family yeah. like you know mums, daughters, whatever. Yeah. And uh, it's sort of sad to see that a lot of these places are starting to close down because when I grew up playing, you know there was my dad's club, which was Classic Hugh and Ringwood. Then uh, just down the road there was another one uh, next to like the the Time Zone um, Fast Break, I think it was called. Another warning, you had another one called Matchroom. And in between that, yeah, you had Mitchum RSL, Ringwood RSL. You yeah. had, there was loads of places yeah. where you could go and play. Uh, and, and it's sort of sad to see that, it, that it's um, you know, got to this. <coughs> in the UK, um, you're only allowed to have like two or three in each snooker club. Yeah. So in, in that regard, it, that, that's not the issue for them. Uh, it's just about the the space really and, and trying to get as many people to sort of like play snooker and pull as, as much as possible. So... They'll be cut. They're, they're struggling from uh, for different reasons. I think. Yeah. Um, then, what seems to be the the most obvious case um, over here, I don't really know what the what the solution is because um, you know the, the problem with snooker is obviously it takes up a huge amount of space, like a twelve by six you know yeah, yeah. table, and then you, know, you need the the space around it as well to be able to play yeah. comfortably. Um, but it's yeah. so watch. I mean, it's such a watchable sport. Like my wife came along to watch 
the uh, DVSA, my first <laughs> grand final, um, which we which we happy to won. And Sam sort of sat with her and explained what was going on because you know before that I just said oh, I started playing snook with my friend from work. We started at AK8, which is the down one the on Ferry yeah. Street just down the road. Oh yeah, and yeah. we were playing pool. And then Sam comes in one day and he goes, oh, you know, like we should play snook. And I was like, oh, fuck, <laughs> snook, snooker. <laughs> um, so then we kind of said, and then you know, in the first time I reckon we played, we didn't pot a ball. Like, we, we, our frames were taking like 85, 90 minutes. And then, no safety it was just we just couldn't hit it in yeah yeah um but i think my wife came along and even for her it was really it's such a watchable sport mm. um so it's that thing of, you know for, so the interest levels i guess are there and on tv you know i guess with barry Hearn, you know some of one of the things that has done is for all of us we've watched a lot of sneaker and most That's people right. are into it but the um the challenge is they're getting the playing because for someone like yourself who's you know reached right at the top the prize money is quite good but we were looking at things like the gibraltar open and it's like, you, you've got to be bloody good to win that. But the prize money is barely enough to keep you going for a month or two. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, so, some of the the prize money is just shot through the roof um, mm. overall. I think the tour is, um, in terms of dollars, it'd be around sort of like $25, 28000000 million yeah. on, on, the, on the tour this year, which, you know, when I go back to talking about playing in six events a season and now we've got sort of like 20-odd events, yeah, and yeah. the prize money's you know, doubled in pretty much, or doubled, tripled. In all of them, yeah. Um, but so the, you know, the top twenty in the world do really, really well. Uh, and then you know, if you're a rookie on the tour, then you know the first couple of years can be pretty tough, I suppose. Yeah. Um, what World Snooker did really well uh, a couple of years ago um, was that we used to pay about ten thousand dollars in entry fees yeah. for each season, and then um, so that got taken away once the tour was doing really well. Yeah. We've got we've got loads of sponsors now. Yeah. Um, you know, the sport's thriving all around the world. Yeah. You know, we've got Eurosport Australia now yeah. mm. as well, covering covering a lot of the events, which yeah, is, yeah. you know, fantastic. So um, everything's spreading around really, really well. Yeah. Uh, actually, a funny story with, with Kurt is, is that after his first season, when he had to pay that, you know, eight, nine thousand, ten thousand dollars $10,000 entry fee, um, his second season, they um, they they took that away, <laughs> and Kurt loves his uh, rally car racing and all that sort of yeah. stuff. And so when that got announced, that all suddenly didn't have to fork out the ten thousand, <laughs> uh, he forked out about a thousand dollars on on a on this um, for the PlayStation. This uh, like um, oh, this no. huge steering wheel pedals and <laughs> all this sort of stuff. Uh, so he could do his rally driving um, yeah. at home. You know, I'd be all of a sudden just hear this cr- these crazy <laughs> noises. <laughs> uh, like a video game room sort of thing with a PlayStation <laughs> that yeah. Yeah, so, so that he's was in the at the same yeah, time yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he plugs himself in and then he's got, like the steering wheel's going nuts he's on the pedals it's like you know my house is shaking it's like he's actually driving a real car so. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was pretty yeah. funny and I'm assuming that for snooker players and, and particularly if you can you know there's something that you guys have that makes you the top top players Presumably, you approach the other parts of your life with the same degree of focus. Like it's a personality thing yeah. to an extent of that thing of focus. Like I don't half do things. No, if I'm you know I'm going to try and be the watcher. You can't half do snooker. You no, know, it's, it's why I dare not pick up a set of golf clubs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Murphy's picked up golf clubs, yeah, and we're yeah. worried about like we're, we're a bit worried about him. I've got to be honest. And he, he's the one who said like if you want to be good at snooker, don't get a girlfriend. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, yeah, he um, he sort of said 
he sort of set a goal for himself to uh, to have a crack at the the open mm. to the qualifying rounds, and so yeah. he got his handicap down to like being scratch golfer. Yeah, and um, yeah, he had a go. He, he didn't do particularly well, but it's it's something that he always wanted to at least try yeah. once. Yeah, yeah. Good on and um, so yeah, I think that's probably why last year he didn't have the best of seasons is because yeah. I think he was, he was playing probably a bit too much golf. Yeah, <laughs> um, but you know, it's something that he was able to do, and and I mean, he started the season really well. He got to the final of the international yeah. championship, so um, I'm sure his focus is well. Back yeah, yeah, he played, played beautifully mm. recently. Yeah, um, I believe you um, uh, had a discrepancy with your license at one stage in England, um, and had to catch a train to a tournament. Um, and apparently, when you caught the train to the tournament, you caught the train going the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah, Is that correct? Right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I um, it was uh, for a Premier League match, um, and yeah, I. I I'd never actually travelled there before. It was in a place called Landud now, which is in North Wales. Oh. It was about four and a half, five hours on the train. And um, so I got the train from Cambridge and uh, the platform had two trains on it, but one went one way and one went the other. <laughs> and I got on the wrong train. <laughs> and uh, so I got a, I realised reasonably early that I'd, I'd got on the wrong train and so I got off as soon as I could, but I let them know... Um, I let Matroom know that look, I'm I'm struggling to get there. Like, <laughs> is there anything you can do? And they said like, no, there's not. Ronnie O'Sullivan was playing Mark Selby first, and then I was to go on uh, straight away after that. And so it's you know, there's not much time um, in between. And so uh, yes, yeah, so I'm I'm on the train. I'm like, you know, oh, I can't believe this is happening. And you know, and uh, yeah. So the funny thing was was that Ronnie O'Sullivan and Mark Selby had a huge sort of bit of a bit of rivalry at the time and so uh Ronnie Sullivan was just all of a sudden trying so hard even in the scrappy frames where usually kind of like yeah, yeah. Gives no, up. Yeah. and um so it's just incredible and Joe Perry was texting me saying oh, I can't believe how lucky you are do you know what how Ronnie's playing right now he's just like he's trying so hard this is incredible this could only happen to you and so I got to the train station the guy from Matchroom picked me up rushed me to the um to to the venue um, and I got there and Ronnie O'Sullivan was, was still playing and he just finished his match um, and he knocks Elby out of the Premier League. I had to beat Sean Murphy by the scoreline of 4-2 uh, to actually qualify for the semi-finals, uh, which I was also able to do, um, which was just absolutely crazy. So I went from not even thinking that um, you get I was going to play to mm-hmm. playing, winning, qualifying for the semi-finals and <laughs> yeah, it was just <laughs> pretty amazing. Yeah. I believe you always have to have very comfortable shoes when you're playing the game. And apparently, um, somewhere along the lines, you went to a, one of the tournaments, and for whatever reason, you, uh, you forgot your shoes, or yeah. mislaid them somewhere. <laughs> yeah, um, and you didn't have much time up your up your sleeve to uh, start the frame or something to that nature. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think um, I won my first round of the World Championships in this was uh, two thousand and eight. Yeah, it was two thousand and eight. Uh, one of my first round match, I went back home to the Cambridge um, because there's like five days in between mm. the first and second round, so there's not much point in yeah, yeah, taking yeah. around. And so then I went up the second time, and uh, yeah, I hadn't realised I'd got my shoes, so I'm getting ready to play my, my last 16 match with Stephen Maguire. I'm, you know, waistcoat, shirt, trousers, bow tie on, everything like that. You know, done my hair, whatever, and I'm like, oh, right, yeah, where are my shoes? And so I was just looking through my bag. Oh no, they're not there. Oh, that must be there. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I've left my shoes behind. And 
as a as a snooker player, like I mean, the the shoes that I wear today are like eight years old. Um, you know, you, a lot of the players we wear them for like a really long time because you, you get know, used to it, right? Yeah, 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 you don't really want to wear brand new dress shoes when you're playing snooker, yeah. you know. Yeah. And um, so when I realised it was like forty five minutes before I'm going to play, and um, and so I was rushing around like the, these shops trying to trying to find shoes, and then people had sort of worked out what was going on and then they started going around with their camera phones recording me trying on pairs of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> There's all these people, all these like, people in the public are coming into the shoe stores with me and like filming me trying pairs of shoes oh, on. And things. No. It's just like, I'm trying to like get them away or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah. So I finally just got a pair. They were pretty comfortable, but they looked horrendous. And um, um, when you're playing on TV, you know, and I, I was just thinking like I'd started the match and I went one nil down, two nil down. I'm thinking, yeah, my shoes look horrendous. <laughs> 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 so bad. It's and funny um, to talk to, yeah. I lost the first session 8-0. Mm-hmm. I was 8-0 down going in. And um, the, f- the funny thing was is that um, my manager, oh, he called me up and he said, he said, what's this? I hear you left your shoes. And I'm like, yeah, I, yeah, I left them behind. He's like, oh, I bet you didn't forget your hair products. Again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny though too, because in the finals last year, we get messages from Bill and he gets the rule book and he circles in red and he texts us the thing. The and code. so these shoes here, my black leather ones, because I'm the same. I was like, look, I don't want the dress shoes. They're going to slide around. But Bill kind of like, he texts me and he goes, look, Dave, we're going to practice on Saturday before the finals. You better get Make up. sure you wear the clothes you're going to wear <laughs> so you can practice in them. And it's not so that I can get comfortable in them. It's so he can actually, vet them <laughs> and make sure that I'm not going to get breached <laughs> he doesn't want a uniform coat this man is obsessed with the uh, well, no no because the rules are the rules yeah. and I can't change it this and, is a and that's that's the thing you know <laughs> like I've got to make sure you feel comfortable this on brings the up a crazy memory of mine when um, uh, my dad and my brother are in the same uh, pennant team I think it was uh, B grade mm. and um, my brother would have been only 13 at the time uh, I, I wasn't I wasn't playing and um, so they were in the finals for the B grade pennant in the semifinals. Yeah. And um, they went to the venue with their trousers, shirt, waistcoat, and everything like that. But they get to the venue and uh, and, and the opposition say, "Oh, wh- like, where are your bow ties?" And my dad didn't know that <laughs> yet they wear bow ties in the finals. Yeah. And um, and so uh, they actually said, "Oh, then that, that means we win." Like, you know, you have to forfeit. Oh, no, it's, it's so staggering, my right? And so they, they quickly went outside. They tried to find places where they could buy their ties or anything. And Turn their shoelaces and tie them Yeah, the, 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 um, and the, the opposition team they actually claimed it. They, they actually, took the oh, walkover. Yeah, yeah. They, they took the walkover. They said, sorry, you can't play. We oh, win. there's an asterisk next to that one. That's definitely not a final when you can brag oh, about that one. We don't want to look, we, we don't want to <laughs> speculate as to which club that might be. <laughs> we would have some remember. ideas. Diplomatic. Now, the next question is from David Pitt, uh, who's, oh, yeah. uh, you know, David Well. Right. Uh, David's. Uh, Telling us that the World Village is being held at the RACV Club in Melbourne uh, in October, early October. Uh, fantastic venue, as we all know, probably actually the best in Australia um, that I've seen any of for starters. Um, he's saying to me that he's giving you a wild card. What an opportunity for starters. And he's <laughs> told me you made your highest break recently of 186 in Billets. Is that correct? 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So Dave, uh, yeah, he invited me, gave me a wild card to uh, enter the world billiards. Um, there is a there is a gap there technically where I could actually uh, come down and play. Um, Wouldn't that be sure. a sight to behold? <laughs> <for starters? laughs> I'm not too sure how well I'll do. I'd probably frustrate a lot of the traditional billiard players by keep potting their white and <laughs> double balking. <laughs> we were yeah. speculating yeah, before you ball. turned up this morning about what a tra- like a Neil Robertson billiards break would look like, and my idea was basically pot the red. Pot the red, finish low on the red, play up to like the bought cushion, and just for the challenge, play from the center spot, make the long pot, and start. Again. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so um, I, was, I was practicing uh, maybe about eighteen months ago um, back in my club in Cambridge, and uh, I was getting quite bored um, practicing snooker. So I thought, oh, I'll just like play a bit of billiards and. Um, uh, one of my first coaches, uh, Peter Gray, uh, he's, he's sadly um, passed away, passed away quite a few years ago now. Uh, he taught me how to play uh, what was called postman's knock, like yep. top of the table, yep. where what you do is it's quite it's suited quite well to, to good snooker players, I guess, where you pop two reds and then you just keep, uh, then you play a cannon and you nudge the um, uh, the white ball, the opponent's ball, yeah, that's yeah. on the top cushion. You yeah. just get a double kiss and you put the red yeah, over yeah, the corner yeah. pocket and then yeah. you just keep that yeah, going. Yeah, yeah. And so I actually just practised and, and I was doing that and I um, I made 186. And the funny thing was is that Joe Perry was actually watching me and, uh, you know, as I was getting to like 60, 70, 80, 90, I got to 100, he was getting a little bit kind of like jealous or something. Yeah. And uh, and every time I made a glancing cannon, he'd shout from the the other side of the room. He'd say, "That didn't hit it. That didn't hit it." <laughs> <laughs> oh, the gentleman! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I got the 186. And I actually messed up quite an easy sort of like cannon, really, because I really wanted to make a double hundred. Mm. Um, and uh, I told Pank Giovanni, I was talking to him about it. He was really impressed that I could actually do that and yeah. stuff. And uh, yeah, yeah I, I'd love to play. Billiards a little bit more. Uh, I'd love to like play in a billiards tournament one day. So, um, well, the yeah, Australians, the world opens <laughs> on at the RACV in October, early yeah. October, yeah. and you've got an the incredible wildcard. field, mm. by the way. Yes, absolutely mm. amazing. Yeah, we're mm. hoping to um, do something with um, those gentlemen here at some stage yeah. when they come across. Yeah, that'd be um, brilliant. So yeah, so. anything to do to promote Q Sports mm. in any way. Yeah, that's, get that's what we're about. Like Panka Giovanni on or something mm. like that. Yeah, yeah. So that'd, that'd be fantastic. You know, so so there's a couple couple final questions from Sam I think oh, Sam's yeah. the nerd so yeah I'm a nerd as well yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm here to fill you know that, <laughs> that bit so did you watch the new Star Wars trailer uh, the the latest one? Yeah, the, just last week. Or uh, just this week. Yes, yes, I've seen that. Yeah. Yep. And, and what were your thoughts on Evil Ray? Do you reckon she's just a vision or do you reckon that's genuine? Um, or? I don't know. I think that, um, uh, I think when Star Wars changed from George Lucas to J.J. Uh, is it Abrams? Yeah. Mm. Um, I felt like a lot of Star Wars fans that he kind of like destroyed, you know, right. <laughs> the things like, I mean, I think Ray basically downloading the force in five minutes. Skywalker, you know, training with Yoda on that, you know, that, that horrendous planet and stuff like that. And, yep. you know, she just somehow just instantly sort of like learns the force. Um, I loved Rogue One. I thought that was a brilliant mm. film. Really, really enjoyed that. Uh, especially the end with, uh, you know, Darth Vader at, at the end. That was just, that was awesome to watch. Yeah, that was amazing. Um, I will still watch it because I, I have to. And Alexander, but the funny thing it's is, is that war. Star Wars is kind of like made for the younger generation mm. of, of kids. And so my son loves it. Mm. And I'm, 
thinking to him like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. like, David's favorite is the Phantom Menace. That's, yeah, that's I, a great film. That's the one I, I saw. When I was, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know if it's my favorite though. Supporter now, it's alright. Because we go from watching the fight scenes in the seventies and the eighties, where it's very traditional, you know, to you know the Phantom Menace, the fight scenes with the lightsabers. It's interesting though. The one thing that always struck me about that was that was about the time the PlayStation One came out, and there was this game called Wipeout, which was this weird kind of like space race game. Yeah, that's right. And it was kind of like that pod racing thing kind of. So it's very much yep. a, I think being born at the same time is, I don't think anyone who was born outside of that little window that probably we were born of as much of a Phantom Menace fan. <laughs> but it just seemed to capture the time, I think, a, yeah. a little bit. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. And what Marvel film do you reckon you're looking forward to now that Endgame's finished? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, but that was like, you know, a huge moment in my life of like watching yeah, movies same. that just <laughs> um, the funny thing is that the uh, end game was on during the world championships yeah and so um after i beat sean murphy uh, in the last 16 um i think end game came out that night so obviously i, c- I couldn't make it that night so basically i switched my phone off <laughs> until like until i knew i could get tickets so I, I got tickets for the next uh showing which was like the next day around lunchtime so I just turned my yeah. phone off because I didn't want any spoilers anyone who would have sent me any kind of spoiler <laughs> yeah. was, was going to be a dead man so, <laughs> um, so I went in and watched it 3D um, yeah, watching the film like how's it all going to end and uh, yeah it was just amazing it was just one of the most amazing uh, films and sort of franchises how it's all come together 90% of the, the cinema were all in tears at the end. It was just yeah. unbelievable. I had yeah. to like really try my absolute hardest not to like shed any tears myself. Yeah, I was. I, I gave in. <laughs> yeah, with um, yeah, Iron Man at the end is what did it to me when he's yeah. when he's talking to his um, talking to his daughter through like the the hologram. I kind of like envisioned myself doing that to Alexander, and that was like put a lump in my throat. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was awesome. I don't know what to expect now. I think um, obviously Stan Lee passing away. Um, yeah, who knows? I, ju- I just hope that they can, you know, do it justice and, and, and yeah. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, hopefully they can end it better than, you know, how Game of Thrones ended because that's uh, that, that was you know, incredibly frustrating to watch as well. <laughs> Put up. There's probably one last thing, and this is one moment that you're a part of. I just want to play an audio. It's very quick, um, just to finish off. So here we go. So I'm wondering if you know when that was. <laughs> yeah, that was earlier this year um, in the final of the um, the Players Championship. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, the yeah, it was the Players Championship. Uh, it was in the final, and that was on top of that being Ronnie's thousand thousandth uh, career century. Uh, it was probably the best he's ever played. Yeah, as well. And yeah. you had a couple of finals me. in a row, didn't? Did you play two finals? I made, uh, towards the back end of the season going into the World Championships, so I made the four finals in a row. Yeah, and were two um, of them against Ronnie? Uh, two of them were against Ronnie, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Uh, one of them was the Players' Championship. Uh, the other one was only the top eight in the world. Yeah. Um, That's the Tour Championship? The Tour right? Championship, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah where that, that was 13 11, yeah. which was yeah. really close. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that um, was, and that was a match and a half. Yeah, yeah that was a really great was. match. Yeah. The, the, the first one, the Players' Championship, you know, a couple of weeks before that. 
Um, I think he beat me 10-3, 10-4 no. or something. Um, and I actually played all right as well. Yeah. And But he was absolutely unplayable. He's, he's the, you know, people talk about Federer and, and people like that. But for me, he's the best ever sort of sportsman the world has, has seen. I, I truly I often think, we've said this before, because he can... The five-minute 147 is probably the single great... And I know you've said that 147 is not necessarily... You know, made 100 centuries, and that was almost more important. But that five-minute 147, to be able to do it that quickly, it just showed a level yeah. of, like, comprehension yeah. of, like, what you can do, at, like, so quickly. At the Crucible as well, the yeah. championship with, you know, $300,000 on the line. Yeah, Because yeah. back then, if you made a 147, you got $300,000. Yeah, yeah. oh. um, yeah. To do it in, yeah, five minutes, 20 seconds, and... People who have been um, seen as potential people who could possibly break it somehow. Yeah. You know, Tep Chai Anu, he, his fastest 147 he done was like seven minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is crazy fast, but yeah. still nothing compared to yeah, the one yeah, he did. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was it was still a very special moment to be in the arena and experience yeah. that when Ronnie made the thousandth century. It was very similar to mine at the Crucible yeah. when I made my hundredth century for the season. And I think it's a really interesting thing to finish on is that for you guys and for all of us that play snooker, that what do you guys how do you feel about the other players that you play against i mean because obviously you know is there a what do you want to see those guys get better or is it something that you always kind of focus on yourself or is there a sense of camaraderie amongst yourself or particular players that you get used to because we're kind of the same we in our leagues we'll play you know people regularly and bill would have played henry a few times and you know you start to get to play a few people a few times do you do you kind of urge each other on? Is that how it works? Yeah, I think early on in my career, um, I wouldn't say uh, jealousy was the word or um, maybe a bit of envy. I guess when I, wa- I seen Sean Murphy win the World Championship 2005 before I had actually won a tournament, you know, I wasn't like sort of jealous or anything, yeah. but I was like, oh, gee, I really wish that was me or I wish I, c- I hopefully I can do that one day. Yeah. I think you kind of look at it. I think the, the other players, even other top players, that um, look at other players achieving great things in, in a jealous way or, or very envious way really struggle struggle to improve themselves. Yeah, yeah. Where I've always seen it as an opportunity to try and get better and to try and learn from them, or you know, especially Ronnie O'Sullivan. Mm. You know, whenever he's playing, even now, I'll always watch him. There's always little things to pick up and improve on. Whereas a lot of other players just not even watch snooker and mm. you know just think that they are unlucky in that particular event yeah. rather than thinking about mistakes and things that they can improve on. Yeah. So I think that's one of the big keys for me is that I've always been able to improve every year. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, now I've you know, I've won everything in the game, some of the, the biggest tournaments multiple times. Yeah. So with myself, Mark Selby, Sean Murphy, like Ding, Judd, we all get along really well yeah. because we've all achieved everything we've wanted to achieve in the game. Yeah. So now we're all just, it, it's a really healthy rivalry where you know, we get along fantastically well away from the table. Uh, yeah. even at events and it's all about just spurring each other on to try and get better to try and yeah. you know you, you want to beat him, beat the other guy as much as anything but you know you, you I think it um, help, snooker's in a really healthy spot right now where all the players get along really well there are really good rivalries there's a few yeah. funny ones with Kyron Wilson and Judd Trump yeah, where, yeah, yeah. you know <laughs> yeah. which you do need you do yeah. need a bit of that yeah um, but uh, yeah, as a whole, it, it's a really healthy tour and um, really a great place to compete. You know, it's not like a, a, a do or die sort of like situation where I think earlier on in my career it felt like that when I was yeah. um, maybe my second and third year on the tour, it was very much like a lonely place. Whereas now, um, a bit more of like a, a friendly 
sort of family environment because we've got so many tournaments. Yeah. You know, when the year I won the World Championship was six tournaments, I play in one tournament and we're not playing again for like two or three months, yeah, which yeah. is just crazy. But now we're playing in tournaments most weeks. Yeah. So there's a reason for every player to be happy that they're actually competing every week without having to wait like a really long time to play. So like the success is spread around. Mm, yeah. Yeah, when I won the World Championship, I won the Grand Prix earlier that season and the World Championship, so I won 33% of the events. Yeah. You know, yeah. so there's only four other players who could have actually won an event that season, so then there is more of the, like, maybe jealousy going on. Yeah. But now yeah. all the top players are winning things, so everyone's kind of happy. Obviously, Australia would be, like, really proud of your decorated career, but I think um, Australia would also be proud that you've been so open about, like, mental health and, like, video game yeah. addiction, and mm. I think that means a lot to a lot of people. Like, I... We're like obviously as a player, I'm like mm. just really proud to have someone like you representing us over there, and that's really yeah, important. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's the same. You know, I have a, my wife does illustration. It's a really hard, lonely thing, and you know, hearing you talk about the family and just the way that you kind of have to balance your your career and your family. It's yeah, a, absolutely. I think that when when you're somebody who's um, who, who gets a lot of media attention or who's in the public eye a lot. Um, I think that a lot of people can be watching at home. Uh, maybe they're struggling with depression or anxiety and stuff like that. And maybe I only think it happens to like you know, what you call like normal people, mm. I guess. But you know the fact that it can happen to anyone. I think mm. you've seen a lot of um, a lot of sportsmen, a lot of yeah, movie stars yeah. come out and talk yeah. about it now as well, yeah. which is fantastic to see. So I guess you know everyone doesn't feel so lonely, and that mm. you know if famous people can talk about um, mental health openly, then everyone can. And that's the most important thing is, is, is to talk about it, talk about your, your friends and your family and stuff like that. So it won't have this sort of bad stigma attached to it. Um, and the last couple of years, it, it's been incredible. Um, you know, the support that, you know, myself and Miller have had, it's, it's been yeah. incredible. And, you know, um, where we've come as a family, where we were a couple of years ago, it's just an amazing transformation and, and it's inspiring a lot of people. We get a lot of messages, you know, via yeah. social media, how much they're he how much it's helped and, and how much they've improved their lives as well. Yeah. Oh, look, thank, thanks so much for coming. Yeah. I think it's yeah. been, the, and we said at the start, we're really lucky because we have, there's great blokes across Nuka and I think for us it's, you know, we're really lucky to have had you come in, but even going along to the championships, but it's not just people like yourself, it is people like Bill who help us mm, um, to get right. better at the game and who actually kind of care about the game and care about promoting it. And I think it's really nice to have just different generations of people, different things, all kind of sharing, you know, how they're actually, like why they love the game, what's a big part of their lives. So thanks for joining us, Neil. Yeah, no worries, guys. Okay, so that was a pretty good episode. What do you reckon? Oh, it was very exciting. Yep. Uh, so first ep first episode of Chalking Snooker, and we had Neil Robertson. We're giving him a rating as a guest, a high rating. Um, <sighs> a solid eight out of ten, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, what would he have done? What could he have done better? Um, he could have given us the one secret that. All of the professionals know to start making century breaks that I could have put into my own game. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Just that one easy, quick fix secret to be able to make century breaks. Yeah. Oh, no, it's, is, it's, that, it's, is that too much to ask for, Neil? I think so. <laughs> Seems to be. <laughs> uh, the worst part about it is now I've come to the understanding that I'm not allowed to eat when I practice, <laughs> which is probably going to be good for my um, clothes sizing and everything, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know, it'd be a bit of a struggle. So what about for you? What what have you what did you find interesting about what Neil had to say? I thought I I I just wonder how he would have gone or how his career might have been different if he had any other person as a dad who might have been like, No, go back to school. Yeah. <laughs> it know? does show, yeah, it shows you that kind of 
Um, Not that know. I'm encouraging any parents out there to be like, oh, if you don't want to go to school, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> But if you're not, I mean, it's one of those sports, I guess, where you have to be all in. Yeah. Suppose, unless well. unless your child is showing distinct Neil Robertson traits, maybe. Yeah. Like wag. Yeah. <laughs> if they haven't made a century break in three years, send them back to school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it is amazing to think. I think what's really interesting, like coming from Australia, how obviously, you know, players from the UK and by and large dominated snooker. And kind of hearing the amount of travel that he had to do and the way that he had to you know, get over there in the first place really kind of made you understand how difficult it is for players from Australia to break into the professional circuit over there. Even just being able to afford to give it a go. Yeah, ex- like yeah, exactly. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we've probably in some ways been lucky that even though, you know, he's probably done the best of them, we've still had quite a few few players over, you know, mm-hmm. with, who've got their card for a period of time. So, yep. and hopefully there'll be more and more. Yeah. Steve um, Mister is over there. For the next two seasons, I think he's got yeah. to a card from winning the Oceana. Yeah. Um, but we recorded the episode a couple of weeks ago, and it's been pretty eventful as well. I don't know if we've cursed him. No, we might have cursed him. So it was but kind of the start. There's a lot of optimism, uh, you know, at the moment, sort of talking about going well. Um, but, you know, since then, a few things have happened. So before he was even in the, in, in the studio recording the episode, that was when he the flight was delayed, so he couldn't get to the Riga Masters. Yeah. Gave us a walkover. Yeah. At then there was the tip. I didn't watch this. Shanghai match against Ronnie was winning and just miscued on the yellow, destroyed the tip. Gone. <laughs> I think he repaired it, didn't replace it. Yeah. And he made a century in the next frame. Yeah. But then just the wheels fell off. Yeah. After yeah that. Hard. It's a big change in feeling there. Yeah. I think it's probably just having confidence yeah. in, your, in uh, your equipment as well as yourself. Yeah. Um, and also. Maurice, <laughs> <The> sat nav, <laughs> sat more, more recently driving to the wrong suburb, uh, the wrong entire town. I think. Yeah, well, there being two Barnsleys in England, uh, it seems like he's copying a fair bit of heat on the Twitters and the Reddit. So yeah, he, I think Satnav Selby is actually giving him Satnav advice <laughs> of how to get to Leicester. It's good to see that he's a good sport about yeah. it. Yeah, but um, it's interesting. I, I think that's the um, the whole thing about the shoes. So I like the idea that someone who is so good at a game that requires so much focus is obviously a bit kind of like, <laughs> you know, like useless information needs mm. someone to kind of deal with those yep. problems. Yeah. Um, another thing that we talked about, which I thought was exciting, was our concern for Sean Murphy. And I feel like he might have been listening. He might have been. Because we've really helped him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's, um, look, we were concerned about the fact that he decided to focus on golf, which is, you know, to some extent problematic because, I mean... Golf is not really a great sport. We don't really want to talk about golf that much. But Who's talking about golf? Exactly. No <laughs> one talks about golf. <laughs> um, but so we've, we were a bit worried about him, but he's honestly pretty much dominated, I think, hasn't he? Yeah, no, he's won a tournament. He's been in two finals, I think. Yeah. Um, he's already done more money, way more ranking more. points than last year. Way more. Um, yeah. And he's queuing. He's looking fluid. So mm. we're going to the Crucible in 2020. Right. Um, I wasn't, you know, at the start of this year, didn't know if we'd see a lot of him, but uh, he's really, really playing well at the moment. Which is yeah, good. like if it was, if the Crystal was going to happen next week, you would definitely put him in the basket of contenders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah his scoring is really good. So obviously, we had a lot of optimism about Neil when we recorded the podcast. Um, it's been a rocky road since then. Uh, a little concern for Sean Murphy, um, but that's gone really well. 
got done its head. Yeah. Um, We're hoping for the best for Neil for the English Open. Yeah. He has directions. Have you got a tip for the English Open? Who are you thinking? I mean, if Neil plays, he might do well. Yeah. <laughs> well, we just had him on. We should. He's probably due. Yeah. Um, the concern is he probably hasn't played a meaningful match for... Well, well, he had the Ronnie one, but... Yeah. Well, one of the... Um, one of his achievements that we didn't actually talk about with him when he was here was the fact that he's won an event every year for like 14 years, like at least one, yeah. which is insane. Yeah. Yeah, especially the number of ranking tournaments. I mean, there's not mm. a massive number of them. And even in the last, you know, probably now it's probably a little bit easier, but before that, I mean, it's only in the last few years that there was a lot of them. As you mm. were saying, you know, when he won the World Championship in 2010, there was barely any. So, yeah, I think that's pretty good. Mm. Hopefully he'll win the Crucible though. I mean, that'd be... It'd be good to see that as yeah, an Australian yeah. being there. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, anyone else concerns you? A bit, a ding, oh, Ding's a bit problematic. Yeah. A bit struggling at the moment, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Yeah, he's not been, not been playing. Because they were had um, in China, they had put the TV table on two lower-ranked players because they just assumed that Ding would make it through that round to play on that table. Yeah. Every, the audience wants to see Ding play. Yeah. And he didn't make it through and then just screwed yeah. up their plans a little bit. Yeah. But he's very likable though, so hopefully mm. it comes good. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's probably about it for this episode of Chalking Snooker. It's been a lot of fun. It has been. Um, we've done really well. Hopefully we'll get someone good. I'm not sure we can get someone to compare with Neil. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening. And um, we really hope that you make your best break. In the coming week before the next episode. Um, And yeah. We'll see you then. Bye.